Welcome back to another episode of Clinical Appraisal, a show dedicated to exploring the foundations of nursing science and practice, including theory, measurement, and methodology, and the first podcast of its kind to do a deep dive into the nuances of nursing research. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared on this podcast are my own, and none of the information I share constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. Finally, you listeners are what makes this show possible. I believe providers and researchers like myself are public servants and should not be beholden to corporate advertisers, so I have thus far refused sponsorship for this show and I will not accept any advertisements of any kind. But there's still a lot of work that goes into preparing for and creating these episodes for you week to week. So if you would like to donate a small amount to support the show and keep it going, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal to do just that. It would be greatly appreciated. Last night, I posted an episode of the podcast on an idea that I've been considering lately of a DNP-prepared clinical investigator, similar in scope and capacity as an MD-trained investigator or a DO-trained investigator, and how there are quite a few different avenues for a physician to become a physician scientist, and that it baffles me why we could not offer the same types of pathways for DNPs who are interested in research as a career, particularly because we know there's enough work to be done, there's enough spots to do them in, and there's enough interest without taking away from the broader picture of the sort of impetus for the professional doctorate per se, so that it strikes me as strange that it would be controversial at all. As someone who's interested in both degrees, I have a certain amount of intrinsic respect for both sides of the aisle, as it were, not to make it sound like it's partisan. The point being, I posted this episode, and I don't think that it should be controversial, but I do think that it's something interesting to consider that not many people are considering, and that there might be some level of angst with the idea, because it is novel. Um, and I think partly the angst doesn't so much come from the novelty as it does come from... In the nursing profession, there's been a long history of battling with academic legitimacy, by which I mean, inside the profession, everybody has known what nursing scientists and researchers and academicians do is legitimate and is important and unique. And there is a unique epistemological method or methodology here. Um, I think that the scientific questions are unique and often overlap with some perspectives in adjacent fields but are certainly not the same. Uh, for example, there are 
medical scientists interested in symptoms, but symptom science is really, really a nursing science phenomena. I could go on, but suffice it to say, it seems intuitively obvious now that the profession of nursing science is legitimate, has legitimacy, deserves to be treated as a legitimate scientific enterprise, worthy of a place in academia. But this was not always the case. The nursing profession had to fight for the right to... <laughs> you don't know how badly my brain wanted to say party just there. <laughs> had to fight for the right to offer PhD programs. And it wasn't until the 1960s that the first PhD program came about. I want to say that Teachers College uh, Columbia in New York was one of the first, but I don't know if it was the first. I think the very first was Case Western Reserve University School of Nursing who offered the PhD. I know that the EDD had been the Doctor of Education, the Professional Doctorate of Education, that is, uh, had been offered with a focus in nursing or offered to nurses for for some time, but the PhD had been held in such high esteem and for good reason that the university, because they felt the university system, the deans, felt as though the nursing profession was an illegitimate academic enterprise, not worthy of offering a PhD. Finally, there had been enough of an impetus to change this, and so we had the rise of PhD programs, and they produced some astounding academicians, people who really, really altered the face of the profession. Uh, the trajectory of the field was just catapulted because of some of these scholars. And I think it is a frightening prospect to some people to think about diluting or distilling the legitimacy, I guess is a good word for this, of the PhD option as a terminal doctoral degree, in academia, that is, with this notion of a DNP-trained investigator. Because, for a couple of reasons, first, it's easy for people to put this very black and white line in the sand and say, well, the DNP is a clinical doctorate. It's not, by the way. It's an advanced practice professional doctorate. Uh, but ignoring the differences there, um, that term gets thrown around, but we've talked about that on the podcast before. But it's easy to draw this line in the sand and say, well, they work in the clinic. They're master clinicians, and the work they do in terms of scholarships really just about translation. That's enough of a nice, clean divide for them that, that people can say, well, they're not treading on this territory. And Again, I will remind you, most people don't want to tread on that territory. But I, I think it's short-sighted to think that the territory is fully covered by the PhDs. Uh, I've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast as well. But many PhD scientists in nursing are focused on and interested in questions of efficacy, which would make perfect sense. Um, but even the ones that are focused on effectiveness, they may not be focused on the questions you're interested in as a DNP holder as a nurse practitioner in your subspecialty area. 
for example, perhaps you became a nurse practitioner, got your DNP, and are interested in orthopedic rehabilitation nursing, um, just to make up something. And there's not a ton of research in this area. Uh, there's, of course, some, and I'm sure there's some very good research, but there's not a ton. And there are not a ton of people working in that area. If you went into preventive cardiology, well, you're going to be in a landslide of scientific papers for your entire career, uh, or stroke, or suicide, or, I mean, there are so many different, basically all the major killers. You can pick any of them, and you'll just swim in papers forever. But go into an area that's a little bit more niche and removed from the sort of mainstream interests in academia. You'll find that there are some people who are interested in it and who would be willing to collaborate with you, but there's not going to be that much in the way of either efficacy or effectiveness research. And there are not enough PhD trained nurses, either in training now or who've already graduated, to help you answer all the questions you're interested in as a DNP. This is the other reason that I think it's so important to foster that 10, 15, or 20 percent of graduating DNPs who are interested in conducting their own research, because translational science still generates research questions that need answering. And if you have no idea how to answer those questions, then you should get extra training if you're interested in answering those questions. And it doesn't have to be a PhD. It can be something else. You can get uh, solid mentorship, as I talked about yesterday. And so anyway, the long and short of it is that there seems to be this sort of novel avenue for certain certain ways of thinking clinically uh, about questions that might be relevant to your practice and then going about investigating how that might be or investigating some... Um, I mean, even if you think about this cliche notion of DNPs ought to translate evidence, well, in the translation of evidence, new questions emerge. Generally, they are implementation-related. Can this new efficacious program be implemented in the ICU? Can it be implemented with the current nursing staff shortages, let's say? Um, what are the staffing ratios that are required to make this work? What are some of the barriers and facilitators to making this work? These are implementation science questions that actually deserve discovery of their own. And I'm recapitulating some things I've already talked about on the podcast before, so let me backtrack. There are plenty of reasons to at least foster DNPs who are interested in doing this at some point in their career in the same way that we foster MDs who are interested in doing this, or DPTs in physical therapy, or DSWs in social work. I mean, this is a this is a thing. A good example is a doctor of public health. One of the single most famous and highest quality nutritional epidemiologists in the entire world in the history of nutritional epidemiology is Dr. Walter Willett from Harvard, from the School of Public Health. Dr. Willett has an MD and a DRPH, a doctor of public health from Harvard. The DRPH is it's kind of like an advanced practice professional doctorate. I don't think that's necessarily what they consider it per se, because it's not a clinical, it's not following a clinical degree. It's usually following an MPH, although you can get a DRPH 
after a DNP or an MD or whatever. What I'm saying is, this person, Dr. Willett, has published and conducted more science, really good science. When I think about Dr. Willett, I can't think of a nutritional scientist who's done more work than he has. He does not have a PhD. The doctor of public health is the sort of applied version of a PhD in public health. There is indeed a PhD option in public health research. But I don't think I've ever seen PhD public health professionals and doctor of public health trained public health professionals, DRPH professionals, fighting with each other about stepping on each other's toes. Like, maybe it happens. I'm not so sure. Perhaps they they argue, they bicker. But realistically, when it comes to the actual conduct of the work, nobody really cares. You just do good work and people respond to it positively. And nobody in nutritional science, they might quibble with the conclusions, as I mentioned, or their personal opinions, but when it comes to the actual methodologies employed and the statistical analyses and the results themselves, most people have great respect for Dr. Willett for good reason. Nobody cares that they only have the clinical degree and the professional doctorate and not a research doctorate. So I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit, but the point is to really lay the groundwork for the argument, again, that there ought to be this DNP investigator pathway in some capacity or other. Now, the whole purpose of my recording this particular episode is because after I posted that episode last night, um, 54, I got an, a very interesting email. Uh, I woke up to an email this morning from a listener, and she was asking me what the reasons were to get a PhD based on what I had said, which I find fascinating because I didn't say anything at all about those being reasons to supplant the PhD, not even a little bit. Uh, there are plenty of reasons to go toward the PhD and not the DNP, or to get a DNP and a PhD for that matter. There are so many important things that PhDs bring to the field and to the table, and my arguing for a DNP pathway to clinical investigation should in no way take away from how important I think it is for us to generate more nurse scientists with PhD training. So I thought it might be interesting then to talk a little bit about what I see people saying in terms of reasons you should consider getting your PhD in nursing, and talk a little bit about the ones that I think are good reasons, and the ones that I think are not so good. So let me start with the reasons I think are actually quite bad reasons to get a PhD in nursing. Now, for those who've listened for a while who know a little bit about my background, I'm in a kind of a unique predicament here because I actually started graduate school in a PhD-only program, not in nursing, in an adjacent field. I started in a PhD program under the tutelage of uh, a gentleman named Dr. Robert LaForge, who was trained as a behavioral epidemiologist from Johns Hopkins. And uh, Dr. LaForge is one of the first people who really set me on the path of being interested in 
applied methodology, in particular <laughs> with regard to mediation analyses and longitudinal designs and regression. I've never seen someone so passionate about applied regression techniques. <laughs> this gentleman is the only person I've ever known who could sit down with me and just from memory talk at me about linear re regression for two hours without opening a textbook other than to just show me what residuals look like when they're plotted out. <laughs> so in any event, uh, Dr. LaForge sort of set me on this path, but in my conversations with him, I, it was through his mentorship that I really learned that I needed to be refocusing on something more clinical. Um, and so now I am in the DNP program, and I am thrilled about the decision that I made for a myriad of reasons. But at the same time, having participated in the more traditional route to graduate school, I now have a bit of a unique perspective on this point about looking across the aisle at both pathways, let's say. And so I would say, while I have great respect for both pathways, I think it's important to recognize that there are absolutely good reasons not to do either. But since we're going to talk about the PhD a little bit here, I would like to start with the reasons you should absolutely not become a PhD. The first reason, you're intrigued by science. We're all interested in science. There's no reason to get a PhD because you're interested in science. If you're interested in conducting science, that might be a reason to get a PhD, but not necessarily. Most people understand this idea that PhDs are researchers broadly, although not always. Uh, for example, one of my good friends in the PhD program that I started, I believe she's already graduated now, um, but she was very interested in becoming a project officer for a government agency. What a project officer does, they're essentially responsible for making sure that you as a PI adhere to your timeline, your data collection timeline, your funding schedule, your, I mean, there's a, there's a whole timeline for your project. And that master timeline is essentially overseen by a project officer at your funding agency. And the project officer typically has, I think maybe they have to have, a PhD. What's interesting is some people think, well, people who do that are just, you know, it's almost like that old cliche, people who can't do teach, which is nonsense. Um, I think that there's sometimes that same type of attitude about researchers who go into industry or who become project officers or who, you know, aren't interested in doing this sort of like prototypical fight for your life in grant writing R01 style uh, career, I think they think something slightly lesser of them sometimes, but it's actually an incredibly important job. And this one person that I had gone to school with who wanted to do that pathway, who was interested in becoming a project officer, she was one of the most intelligent and highest quality PhD students I've ever met. This was a girl who had, on the side one day, taught me a little bit about differential equations and 
I just have such immense respect for her. The point being, not all PhD trained researchers are interested in a very traditional academic career. And so if you are, that's great. Uh, but if you're just interested in doing research, or if you're just interested in science, and you don't want to generate new knowledge from your studies, uh, then perhaps you just need a master's degree. Because I think what people don't understand about the PhD is that the whole purpose of a PhD and of PhD training broadly is to figure out what do we know about a topic and then figure out what the limits of that topic and our knowledge is and then design a way to explore further to discover something nobody else has ever discovered before. That's the purpose of a PhD. Discovery. Now, there are uh, ways people talk about knowledge generation. That is something I think that is true and it's important and it goes along with the piece about discovery. Um, but I also think that there is this closed-minded idea that knowledge generation only happens at the efficacy level. And that's just silly. Knowledge generation occurs at the translational level as well. Knowledge generation occurs at all levels. And so if you're interested in the discovery and the uh, knowledge generation process at the level of clinical translation, well, then you're generating knowledge too. And so that I don't think that's a good reason to go into a PhD. Um, it is a good reason if that's all you want to do. And if that's where your passion lies, you should absolutely do that. But if you're just interested in science and you just want to know what's already known in your field, well, that's what a master's degree is for. People think that the PhD is like, you get to learn all the things, and you kind of do, really, but mostly you learn about all the things in your master's degree program, and then you sub-specialize more and more and more and more niche into some very detailed sub-discipline in your PhD that ends up being so particular that really nobody in the entire world knows what you're doing except for you and maybe your faculty advisors and your dissertation committee. But the master's degree is really where you learn, where you should learn, what is known in your field. And this is true for PhDs as well. So if your goal isn't to generate new knowledge and new discovery through your own research, then don't get a PhD. Number two is prestige. If you're interested in just being called Dr. So-and-so... <laughs> If you're interested in primarily prestige, I promise you it is not worth it to do a PhD. You will absolutely hate your life. You will hate it. You might stumble into realizing that you liked it after all, but if your only reason is that you want to say, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and you get into academia as a full-fledged researcher or a researcher in training, you're going to realize very quickly how bad an idea that is. I can't tell you how many friends of mine say something about, I wish I could be doctor, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, in some ways I get the temptation to want to be a doctor in something because it sounds nice and it's it gives you some social clout and influence. And if you're Hobbesian, you might say that's like a, a, an impetus toward power or something, you know, 
maybe you're interested in, in being the most competent professional you could possibly be or some other such thing. And that's all well and good, except if you go the PhD route to become a doctor, there's a very particular set of criteria you're going to have to fulfill before you can be called Dr. So-and-so. And if you don't like those things, they're going to make you absolutely miserable because you're going to do them at a level that is hard to describe for longer than you care to understand. I mean, for example, a bachelor's degree in the United States takes roughly four years on average. A master's degree nowadays has trended downward to be about one year, but can be one to two years, sometimes three. People who go part-time, like super part-time, might take a little bit more. But roughly speaking, master's degrees are like one to two years now. Oftentimes, there are BA to MA or BS to MS programs now. And so master's degrees are fairly quick. And so I think people assume that a PhD is like, oh, it, there were, at some point when I was younger, <laughs> for some reason, we always had, my friends and I always had this idea that a PhD was an additional four years onto your bachelor's degree. That is almost never the case. A PhD takes five to seven years to complete. Five to seven. There are some PhD programs where you can graduate less in less time. For example, uh, I think if you have a DNP, you can expect for some PhD programs from there to graduate you in roughly three years. But that really depends on your dissertation committee. It depends on how far along you are. It depends on if you used your scholarly project as a research foundation to launch you into a potential dissertation. It depends on a lot of factors. And it could still be an additional four to maybe five years, depending on if you're going part-time from there. When you complete a PhD, it is commonplace now to elect to do a postdoc, a postdoctoral fellowship. Again, for good reason. It gives you time to get publications out. It gives you time to work with a new mentor. Uh, that mentor might be in a, in a slightly different area, kind of orthogonal to what you were doing before. For example, for some of the people I was with in my PhD program who were interested in neuroimaging, if our training didn't give them sufficient statistical education in, for example, spatial data analysis for fMRI, their postdoc might be something more oriented toward spatial data analysis. Perhaps their new postdoctoral advisor, their fellowship advisor, is a biostatistician rather than a neuropsychologist, let's say, or a neuroscientist. And so it takes quite a long time to become a full-fledged PhD-trained researcher. Your pre- and postdoctoral training to get to the level of being a full-fledged researcher as a PhD holder is often double the length of time it took you to get your undergraduate degree. Double. When people get out of their PhD, they often do postdoctoral training at least once, sometimes multiple postdocs, which can last anywhere from one to two years to about four years, depending on the situation that you're in. And so it is a time-intensive, resource-intensive, <laughs> energy-intensive program. If you don't love 
what you're doing, you will hate your life. Number three, and perhaps one of the most important things that I can iterate to you now, if you hate to write. If you hate to write, you will hate your life as a PhD. You're going to be writing grants. You're going to be writing manuscripts. You're going to be writing symposia proposals and conference proposals and presentations. You're going to be writing book chapters. And it's important that you understand that. If you love science and you love to read and you love to learn, that's great. But unless you love to write and you write well to be able to craft a message that other people will actually want to read and fund, you will hate your life as a PhD. Number four, if you only want to be an educator. If you just want to be an educator, get an EDD. Or get a DNP and then specialize in clinical instruction and education. Get extra training in pedagogy. But if you only want to be an educator, then why put yourself through the hell that is PhD coursework, which might be largely irrelevant for you, and then the dissertation, and then possibly grant writing, and then writing manuscripts. And if you just want to educate, there are other terminal degree options for you. You don't have to do that with a PhD. And, frankly... The nursing literature, the professional literature across the last 10 to 15, maybe 20 years has been saying, well, PhD trained nurses don't have enough, <laughs> don't have enough education in pedagogy. And so you got to get extra training if you want to do that anyway. And it makes sense why they say that, but it also feels like a waste of your time if your only goal is to be an educator. Having said that, though, I want to make it clear that if you got your PhD and you were interested in education, the way that PhD training teaches you about critical thinking, you will become a better teacher. And so perhaps that could be a good enough reason for you. You would have to make that decision on your own. But generally speaking, for most people who are interested only in being a clinical educator, for example, a clinical instructor, I would usher them away from a PhD and toward an EDD or a DNP and then get specialized extra training in pedagogy after, particularly if you're interested in clinical instruction. And finally, number five, because we need, quote, more PhDs in nursing. We do need more PhDs in nursing. But unless you absolutely love conducting science, you're going to be miserable. It is a guarantee that you're going to be miserable. Do not get a PhD because someone else in your life wants you to. You need to do that for you. You're not a statistic. You're a person. Don't sacrifice your life for the profession so that we can say we have more PhDs in nursing. Because if you hate it, it's not going to be worth having you as a PhD in nursing anyway. Don't do it unless it is right for you. Now, I'm going to give you some reasons why I think it would be a good reason to get your PhD. And these are just heuristics, so please understand that these may change, and there are certainly additional points to consider here, but these are my reasons. You'll notice, however, that I've omitted some of the, some of the more typical heuristics, like the knowledge generation piece, which I think is insufficiently nuanced. Uh, there are some other things that I omit that you might notice 
that's intentional. It's not because I forgot about them. Or, I mean, it could be that I forgot about some things. But generally, if if there's a very well-known reason, it, I intentionally omitted it. So the first reason you should consider getting a PhD, if you want or need lots of protected time once your training is done, where you're not splitting it so much with clinical work. Number two, if you only want to conduct research. If you're not interested in doing clinical work anymore, and you're really fascinated or gripped by a research question, or you're a nursing student who is interested in clinical work to inform your questions, but then you're just really gunning to do a career in research with no more than a marginal focus on clinical work, absolutely you should get a PhD. Number three, if you want for your doctoral program to offer you sufficient time to think. The DNP program is an intense program, if you, particularly if you go to a reputable school, and it's an intense program in that there is a flurry of high-level graduate courses that you have to master to be able to competently enter practice in order to be able to provide safe and effective care for real human beings. It's not a joke. This is a very serious program, and it takes a lot of effort, and you have to be on your game, you have to be intelligent, you have to be a hard worker, you have to be persistent and resilient and all of those things. But one of the, th the features of a clinical versus a research program is that Research doctorates tend to give you a lot of time for contemplation. Even when you feel super busy, and you are, for example, my first semester of graduate school, when I was in the PhD program, I worked 20 hours a week. I taught an introduction to statistics lab. I started working on a systematic review and meta-analysis with my faculty advisor, and on top of it, I was taking five classes. In graduate school, that's really not recommended. So I think at the time I was doing like 90 hours a week. And while I was spread incredibly thin, some of those hours, I got to spend them really sitting back with my feet kicked up on my desk, reading and thinking deeply about research papers I was reading for this meta-analysis. And I was incredibly busy and spread incredibly thin. And yet at the same time, I had some space to breathe and think. I don't think that most clinical programs are that way at all. And I think the reason why that is, is because you have to learn what we already know. Again, a PhD program is intended to teach you what there is to learn, but then also where the holes are, and then fill your armamentarium with the tools it takes to be able to discover new things and answer those questions. Clinical programs are intended to teach you what's out there in an intensive fashion and simultaneously show you how to apply it to a patient population. There is no time in a DNP program with all of the competencies that need to be fulfilled in order for you to successfully graduate for you to think deeply the way that a PhD student thinks deeply. So if your goal is to have a lot of time for contemplation and thinking, 
you really should choose a PhD program if you need that for your doctoral training. Now, you could elect to postpone that, as I have, and do both, if you're so inclined. And if you have very good reasons to do it, because you better have some good reasons if that's what you're interested in doing. But if your goal is primarily research or even theoretical work, and your interests really are oriented more toward thinking deeply about a specific problem or set of problems, then I think maybe you should strongly consider the PhD. That, of course, is not to say that you can't think deeply about problems as a DNP, which often is how people conflate that. What I mean by that isn't that DNPs can't think deeply about problems, it's just that, that they have to wait generally till they're done with school to be able to think deeply about those problems. Again, that's not an argument for not affording them the opportunity to do that. It's really more of an argument for creating postdoctoral programs or positions so they can do that uh, and be focused on their own unique clinical problems. The fourth reason I have listed on my list here is if your goal is to conduct mainly efficacy research. Again, there are nurses with PhDs who focus on effectiveness research, but it is more often the case that PhD-trained nurses really focus on what's efficacious. And even in their development of theories or conceptual models, they're really interested in more of that efficacy kind of research spectrum. Whereas, if your interests are more in translation and effectiveness research, you're probably going to be oriented more toward clinical practice. And in that sense, this is where I think that the DNP option might potentially fit for some people in some of the time, although you should, I mean, let me say this now as well. It's clear based on these two episodes of the podcast, last night and today, 54 and what will amount to 55, that I believe that there should be an option for the DNP investigator, DNP trained investigator in clinical nursing research. I believe that there is a nice place for that professional, uh, and I think that there are ample reasons to foster that professional and their development as an investigator. If you are the kind of person who's not interested in fighting for that, however, you should get the PhD in nursing. Because although if we were in medicine, you would have the opportunity to do a postdoc, you can't really expect to do that in nursing unless you fight for it. So if you're interested in it and you want to fight for it, you should fight for it. You should do it. Because we need innovation. We need that kind of generative spirit. But if you need to go the safe route... And there's no shame in that, because you want it to come a little bit smoother, <laughs> and I would not blame you for wanting that, then you should get the PhD. Number five, similar to the focus on efficacy research, if your goal is predominantly to do laboratory-based or bench science research, then you should get the PhD. Particularly if you're not interested in doing clinical work or advanced clinical practice, if your goal ultimately is to work at the bench, to do genomics work, for example, or work in cell lines and do like, I don't know, anti-aging work, you know, as a gerontological nurse or something. 
You could absolutely do that with a PhD in nursing. You'd have to find the right mentor and go to the right program, but there are programs around the country who are operating at an extraordinarily high level in this capacity. I mean, Yvette Conley at Pitt is doing genomics work that is just phenomenal. There are individuals like uh, Susan Dorsey at University of Maryland who is doing pain science work that is just out of this world. There are tons of PhD researchers in nursing who are doing lab-based work. There are people at the NINR doing work in metabolomics and just fantastic things, neurodegeneration. And so there's a slew of places where you can do these things. But you really, again, unless you're interested in spending years and years and years fighting for it, you're really not going to get the opportunity to do that kind of work as a DNP. And if you know ahead of time that that's what you want to do, get your PhD. In nursing, too. You can do that. You can do that kind of work with a PhD in nursing. Number six, if you want to prioritize having enough time to focus on model building and theory development, you're really going to have to have enough protected time for research such that you have additional time to spare on something fun. Because that time is really not going to be funded. So you're just essentially fitting it in during your normal week where you can, presumably, when you're funded, or perhaps your university is paying for a portion of your salary, if you're lucky, by the way. Um, and so this is one really, really important thing to keep in mind if you're not interested in funding your entire salary. Most universities don't pay you a portion of your salary anymore as a PhD researcher. Generally speaking, you fund yourself. There are some places that will offer partial uh, for example, some more traditional universities will pay for an aspect of your salary, maybe 20%, maybe 40%, maybe if you're lucky, half universities, especially those connected with academic medical centers. These faculty positions tend to require that you fund your own salary at 100% through your grant writing. So again, if you're not absolutely invested and obsessed with writing grants and conducting research, you will be miserable. If you love to write and you like the grant writing process and you're competitive and you're good at it, you should absolutely do this. You would be stellar. And we need more of you. We really do. But if you're going to do it and then bail in a couple years because you didn't know what to expect, because nobody told you the truth about what it's like to be an academic researcher, I think somebody ought to do you a favor and tell you now. So hopefully, if you're that person, somebody is sharing this episode with you. So the point I am making here is that if your interests really are, you know, perhaps you have a scientific interest as well, and you're running uh, multiple studies and you are funding your salary and you're doing well, but your real core passion is in theory development or the development of conceptual models, for example, and or testing conceptual models. Perhaps that's the research that you do. Generally speaking, you're going to have to have a, a large amount of protected time for that kind of work. If you're a professional DNP in a clinical setting doing some investigative work, you're probably doing, I mean, I don't actually know of any DNP PIs who are doing R01s right now. But if you're out there, I want to speak with you. So let me know. Um, 
But you can imagine a world in the future where there might be some DNP-trained investigators conducting large R01s. They're probably doing one of them. Maybe. <laughs> With collaborators. Unless they're full-time researchers. If they're working in the clinic, they have to have some protected time. Uh, some time has to be bought out, for example, for that to be a possibility for them. And so if you're really seriously interested in having a, a particularly a full-time clinical career, and you want to do a little bit of investigation across that career, which is great, uh, you can do all that. But you're probably not going to have the time unless you etch it into your own daily life, your, your time outside of work, in your spare time. You're probably not going to be able to focus as heavily on model building and theory development as you want. Number seven, if you are not as interested in translating others' work, or your own work for that matter, into a clinical setting, you really might consider doing a PhD. Because, as I've said before, and I'll say again, the goal and purpose of the DNP is to translate evidence-based nursing practice into the clinical setting. I think it should be possible for you to generate your own ideas and then translate them as a DNP prepared investigator. On the other hand, the vast majority of DNPs are not doing that and are not interested in doing that. The vast majority of DNPs, at least those who fulfill the sort of prototypical DNP competencies according to the AACN 2006, translating evidence-based practices, the ones that are doing that are really translating others' scientific work into the clinical setting. If your goal is to do that, even if your goal is to take that translational knowledge, generate new questions to investigate from an implementation research lens, and then conduct those studies of your own accord, that's, that's one thing that you could do as a DNP holder, potentially. At least that's my argument. Um, if you don't want to do that, but you still want to do research, you should absolutely consider doing a PhD. Because implicit in PhD training is that you're going to be able to explore the things you're interested in, and you won't have to worry about translating other people's work. Number eight on my list, if you want to become a specialist in a particular niche methodology, and you want to master, truly master, in incredible depth, a few topics, maybe, across the length of your 40-year research career, essentially choosing depth over breadth, both in terms of the methodologies you use and the content knowledge you have, you should absolutely choose a PhD for your terminal degree. The nice thing about training as a clinician is that you get to explore the entirety of the field, and you have to be at least somewhat aware of and competent in the basics across your discipline. Because you have people who will come in, guaranteed, they'll come into your clinic or they'll come into your hospital and they will have something that you didn't study or you didn't prepare for and you'll either have to learn it or they're going to suffer the consequences because of it, which would be horrible. And in order to stave off errors like that, it really requires that you have a very large breadth of expertise. PhD trainees, on the other hand, do not have to do that. The ones that also work as clinicians, of course, they're going to have that as well. But for those that don't work clinically anymore, 
They don't have to do that. They have the luxury of thinking incredibly deeply over decades about really, really nuanced problems and using a very particular niche methodologies to attack those problems. And so if your goal is to go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into a very particular hole or a couple sets of holes, then you should really consider PhD training. And finally, the last two are the very most important of my 10 reasons. Number nine, if you love writing, particularly if you're good at writing grants and papers and giving presentations at conferences and then uh, serving as a reviewer, an ad hoc reviewer or an editor for other people's work, and you're really invested in writing and reading and participating in the dialogue and you're passionate about it, you should absolutely choose the PhD or do both. Choose the DNP and then PhD or vice versa because the PhD option will really afford you the opportunity for a career that focuses heavily on those things. In a traditional academic research setting and in a, a very traditional research career, where you're being a productive scientist, writing will really run your life, your career. And if you hate it, you will hate your career. But if you love to write, and you are a very good writer, and you can compel people with your argumentation into buying into the narrative that you need to be able to fund your work, because it is impressive, and it matters, and you can persuade them about those things, you should definitely become a PhD. And finally, number 10, this is the most important one, in my opinion. If you want to run multiple R01 level studies every year across the length of your career, unless you're planning to eventually become a DNP investigator who no longer maintains a clinical practice at all, this is not feasible unless you get a PhD. It is absolutely conceivable for me to imagine people becoming a DNP-prepared investigator with postdoctoral fellowship training, as I mentioned yesterday, or some other kind of master's training, or uh, whatever the case is, and to enter or break into the world of clinical investigation as a DNP. I can absolutely see that being a possibility, and I think, frankly, it's a fantastic idea. However, part of the thing that makes that a wonderful idea is that your substantive participation in a clinical practice, keeping up with the clinical expertise required to be able to participate in that practice, really influences your research questions in a way that is profoundly helpful and important for implementation research in your area of expertise, for your patient population in your clinical setting. But if your goal is to be removed from clinical practice and run multiple R01 level studies each year and not be as engaged in the clinic as you have been, maybe at all, you really need to become a PhD. It doesn't matter how obsessed you are with research. If your goal is to do multiple high-level studies, you cannot do that in a given week unless you're doing 
100 hours a week. While it is possible, (laughs) question mark, it is not advisable, and it's virtually impossible. So it's not a reliable option to think to yourself that you're going to do multiple large R01 studies every year and be a clinical investigator and keep a clinical practice at, you know, some substantial amount of time each week, unless you are an absolute Marvel superhero. So those are the reasons I think you should consider getting a PhD, those 10 reasons. Let me list these back to you again, starting with the reasons I think you should not become a PhD. First reason to not become a PhD is you're interested in science. You need to be more than interested in science. Number two is prestige. You will hate your life if the only reason you got a PhD was for prestige. Being Dr. Smith is not worth it, if that's the reason. Number three is if you hate to write. Number four is if you only want to be an educator. And number five is because we, quote, need more PhDs in nursing, unquote. Don't forget, you're not a statistic. You're a human being with a life of your own. Now for the 10 reasons I think you should consider getting your PhD in nursing. I think they're good reasons. And these are some of the reasons why we really desperately need high quality PhDs. I want to make that very clear. One, if you need lots of protected time after your training is done. Number two, if you only want to conduct research. Number three, if you want time to do your thinking during your doctorate, because there's really no time to think deeply You really have to wait until afterward to do all that. Number four is if your goal is mainly efficacy research. Number five is particularly if your goal is predominantly to do laboratory-based or bench science work. Number six is if you want to prioritize having enough time to focus on model building or theory development. Number seven is if you are not interested in translating other people's work into the clinic. Number eight, if you want to become a specialist in a particular methodology and really master a few topics across your entire career. In other words, choosing depth over breadth. Number nine, if you love writing grants and papers and giving presentations and serving as reviewers or editors for other people's work and really participating in the entire dialogue. And number 10, if you want to run multiple large-scale R01 studies every single year across an entire length of a career. Again, there are certainly additional reasons you can add to this list, and of course there are going to be your own personal reasons to add to this list. I would say if you hit more than half of those 10, you should really strongly consider getting a PhD. Half is arbitrary, obviously. Maybe one of those reasons is sufficient for you. But if you're questioning it as much as you are, and you're looking at that list of 10, and most of those things fit for you, then really, maybe that's the right call. If you're looking at this list of 10, however, 
and you're thinking to yourself, I really don't want to write grants. I really don't like to write that much and I'm not that good at it. I really don't see myself doing multiple large studies every year. Then you really should reconsider becoming a PhD trained academic researcher. Finally, I will end by saying there are additional pathways that you can take after graduating from a PhD. It isn't just traditional academic research. There's a lot that PhD training offers a person. But the point is, a PhD serves a particular purpose in academia. And while it is possible for some outliers to be doing other things, slightly unrelated or orthogonal to the traditional academic path, that traditional research path in academia, if it isn't what you end up doing with your whole career, it will absolutely be what you end up doing with your graduate training and your postgraduate training. So while you're in training for all those years, this is what your life would look like. And you really have to decide up front if that's what you're going to want to do. If you have no idea and you want to explore, there might be some ways to get some experience in an academic setting to really determine this. For example, prior to my applying to graduate school, I worked in a department at a large public university where I got to serve as a researcher on large-scale studies, and that's where I learned firsthand that I loved research and wanted to do it as a career. But if I didn't have that experience or exposure, I would have gone in blind and been taken aback, perhaps. Perhaps not, because I've always been good at and interested in writing. But for most people, it's a shock PhD training, because they don't know what to expect. You should know what to expect. You should really know what you're getting yourself into. But having said that, if this is what you're passionate about, there is plenty of room for you in the field, and you should absolutely get your PhD in nursing science. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. Any support, however small, will be profoundly helpful in continuously improving the episodes across time. If you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com and visit my website at about.me forward slash Ian Lane. If I ever review a paper you are an author on or you would like to join me to discuss some project you are doing, please send a note to that same email address. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.